Welcome to Enneagram with JB, a podcast about Enneagram personalities, where you'll uncover and discover more about yourself and others through the helpful tool of the Enneagram. I'm your host, Julie Underwood. Today, I'm talking with Michael Deneen. Michael has been instrumental in transforming countless lives, focusing holistically on addiction recovery, mental health enhancement, trauma healing, and family restoration at Valiant Living, a renowned 90-day rehabilitation center. Today's conversation is going to be impactful and powerful as he shares his invaluable insights with us. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So before we jump into some serious questions and topics, uh, are you open to some just kind of fun get to know you questions? Please, yes. I know you're located in Colorado, but are you a mountain guy or do you prefer the beach? Well, my kids and I have this discussion all the time and the verdict is mountains, although uh, I love the beach. It's, it, it renews my soul and, then, and, I, and I have to get to the beach a couple of times a year. Um, but when it comes to where I where I get fed the most and nurtured, it's the dirt and rock and mountains mm. and trees and rivers and lakes and uh, and all the wildlife and everything that goes in. So Colorado fits me really well in that. That's that's uh, it's important for me to get into nature as much as possible at least once or twice a week. Okay, what is one of your favorite downtime activities? Well, I love like spiritual development at any level, just connection with other people, like-minded people that, uh, so there's always that um, I'll listen to, since I'm dyslexic, I'll, any book over 250 pages, I will listen to on audible.com. So right now I am 30 hours into uh, Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karasmarov. So I'm, I've got like 10 hours left. And so, you know, on my free time, I'll, I'll listen to uh, books that I would, would have never read given my um, learning disability um, and then just time my time with my high schooler kids because um, I cherish that time. My, my senior son is going to be launched next year. So every hour I get to spend with him. And then, like I said, any type of outdoor sport uh, is really when, when I have a moment, that's where I, where I go. How many kids do you have? Just two, um, a junior and a senior in high school. And uh, my wife and I have been married for 22 years, and we live uh, south of Denver, and that's where the business is as well. It's the uh, Valiant Living is our corporate offices are in the Denver Tech Center. Okay. Do you make New Year's resolutions? I used to. I don't think I have in the last few years. I don't think I do. People are like always like, like, what's your what's your word? I'm like. I don't know. I'm not going to stick to anything. So never mind. <laughs> That's how I feel. I actually, um, what I do every year that helps inform sort of maybe not a resolution, but an intention or a, or a hope or desire or prayer is that I, I review the year in my journal. I'm not a big, I, I wish I journaled every day or every week, but it's sporadic, but I will always spend a few hours looking at the past year and and then I will always spend a few hours writing out what my hopes and dreams are for the for the year to come. And as time has gone on, they've become uh, more simple and profound and and less. So like it will be more like deeper connection with my children and my wife, 
another year of sobriety and more prayer during the day while I'm just walking and talking and 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 more dialed in. And then it'll be like the minute stuff, at least four to five yoga sessions a week, at least this, this, and this. So it'll be the stay consistent with the things that are keeping you grounded. And then it'll be a little bit ex expansion, like where get to Ireland on that trip with those, with those poets, make sure you have the money to go and apply and get to that, where it'll be like one or two kind of epic things. But most of it is real simple stuff, like seek and do, the will of God and what does that look like, you know, uh, type. And so it's not, it's not nothing major. And I think in the past, I'm 55 in the past, it was, it was really about doing and becoming somebody and having an impact. And now I think I've kind of shifted more into quality versus quantity and a little bit more into uh, realizing that I'm just like an ant in this gigantic universe or a speck of sand and I'm really conscious of that of how little I matter to the majority of the world and and the future and the past and how I'm going to be remembered if at all and how much I matter to a very small group of people and then a few people that I impact like here at Valiant like the 50 employees or you know some of the clients that come through that we're putting their families back together where I have a personal connection to and uh, but you you end up realizing I think um, at a certain age how insignificant in some ways we are <laughs> I don't I don't mean that in a pessimistic way I mean it in more like truthful way Yes, I'm just listening to you like, um, I'm a little younger than you, but I feel a lot of what you're saying. You know, I feel a lot of that slowing down and like what really matters, what's really important. Um, okay, what for, you know, for my audience, I'm sure they're all like, what Enneagram type is he? So what is your Enneagram type? I was in denial for a lot of years. I really thought I had myself pegged as a nine uh, because of parts of me were really easygoing and kind of partly cynical about um, the world and its people and, and they're kind of jack of all trades, master of none. And then, and a whole bunch of like, where I would rather for a good chunk of my life be drinking and just hanging out and not overly ambitious sort of peacemaker type. But, uh, but over time, it's, it's pretty apparent to those around me, especially my wife and friends of that. I, uh, I was kind of like an eight in denial. I didn't want to be an eight who has sort of like this dark side of like lust and power and anger and revolutionary spirit and has issues with authority and all, all these, uh, kind of fighter can be your greatest. could be, I could be somebody's, uh, angel and protector and, uh, somebody that literally they feel like saved their life, but I could also be somebody that uh, when threatened, um, I can be a real jerk. I've been, I've had been and can be um, a, a jerk. So it's sort of like being an eight, because I never saw myself as very competitive. Uh, I always had, just had an eight peg that's sort of like more of a, a power type. And, uh, and then I did a little bit more reading and realized that people like Martin Luther King Jr. who were able to uh, heal some of the shadow sides of his eightness and and actually channel and let God use his sort of uh, revolutionary spirit for the good through a nonviolent movement that you can channel some of that rage in the right direction if you let God fully have it, you know? And so a lot of the times it's like surrendering these parts of 
my eightness to use it not for my ego but for uh, God's purposes. And that's a little bit more difficult to explain. That was a short question and a really long answer already. So I won't, I won't go off on a tangent, but eight and, you know, and now, and then when I, I'm in a good, really, really good headspace, I'll lean towards a two of really just wanting to be helpful. Right. And just being really observant about not when feeling threatened uh, in some way or very protective in some way, not to be intimidating, not to let my Irish Catholic, New York, traumatized, ADD, dyslexic, fight for your life, uh, little boy come out, like understand, yeah. understand that he is there and he's in me and that, that I've learned a lot, like I've survived through a lot because of him and I've been able to even push forward and fight for myself, but also some very marginalized types of people like mentally ill people, addicted people, people that um, have sex issues that and, and to see the good in, in them and know that they have that they they deserve someone to fight for them and to fight for their marriage. So so I've been able to use some of this uh, eightness, but it has its dark side, as you know. Interesting. So you're touching on some inner child work, which that is beautiful, tender work. Um, I'm sure you're, you're, you'll unpack more of that as you go, as our conversation goes. Um, but you know, I definitely heard some of that in your story. So can you give us just a, a brief background about your journey that led you to found Valiant Living Center? Like what, what led you into this type of work? Sure. Uh, well, 32 years ago, I, I was on a, a bender. I had been going pretty hard for 10 years from right around, uh, 13 to 23 and I was out of college. I had graduated Boston College in 1990 and it was 91. I was working for a company called EMC. I went on a crazy bender, ended up at a Portuguese festival, got a knife pulled on me, broke bottle broken over my face, a lot of crazy stuff. Ended up on a ferry boat on, on Cape Cod going out to uh, Island of Nantucket to um, for the weekend with some guys and I uh, was still intoxicated from the night before with all this madness and I ended up uh, uh, I think ha getting drunk and, and and then on a dare jumping off the side of the ship almost dying and then having to go back for court thinking I was going to lose my job my girlfriend and I had broken up and all sorts of madness but it all led to this what you know they call it the gift of desperation and you know what what leads an addict or an alcoholic to that moment of clarity where where you're fully broken fully surrendered ready to do anything it takes to change and and until then it's sort of like a man swimming in a sewer thinking he wants to change but when somebody offers him a way out it's like no I don't want to get out of the sewer I actually just want people to stop making waves I want my girlfriend back. I want my wallet back. I want money. I want my reputation back. I want to lose some weight. I want to get out of trouble, but I don't want to actually change from the inside out. I don't want to have to go into the pain of getting out of the sewer. And so it takes a lot of humiliation and pain to get to that point of complete uh, brokenness and utter defeat. And I, I got there on August 5th, 1991, um, after court that day, um, I was on Route 9 um, going home to Framingham outside of Boston, and a buddy of mine was driving me 
um, who's also now sober, but he was driving and I, I completely broke straight out of like biblical, like uh, burning bush sort of road to Damascus type. Uh, um, I literally um, broke. I was like, everywhere I go, people get hurt. Everywhere I go, everyone likes me at first. Everywhere I go, um, I just create way more pain um, than harmony or love or anything. I'm like, I'm a problem and I and I'm more of a and I and I can't imagine my life living differently, but I can't imagine my life remaining the way it is. I can't go on another minute in my own skin. And then my heart broke open. I said my first real prayer of my whole life, my whole being. It wasn't said from my head, it was said from everything else but my head. And I just said, God, please help me or or kill me and and um because uh, I had pretty uh demented uh uh, thoughts about what God and who God was. And I, I came out of my body. I felt love like I had never felt. I knew I was alcoholic. The desire to drink, I actually physically watched it leave me. And uh, I went back into my body. I knew God was real. I knew I was alcoholic. I called up my sister. Um, I start. I mean, this is before cell phones, but I called up my sister. When I got home, I started to cry. Um, she said, I can't help you, Michael. She had heard from somebody in her graduate school course, like if you really want to help an alcoholic, tell them what to do, but then get off the phone as quickly as possible because they're about to manipulate you. And she was crying, I was crying, she hung up the phone and that that started my journey uh, into recovery. So that was 32 years ago, but along the way I noticed all of these things from going to graduate school and getting master's degrees and writing books and struggling with all sorts of things in my life. Uh, you know, relationships, anger, um, trauma, all the inner child stuff, ego, shame, um, you know, other addictions, uh, nicotine, um, you name it, adrenaline, uh, um, all sorts of uh, resentment uh, and codependency. I think about myself the way I think you think of me, right? Where I'm, I'm, I have such a low self-esteem that I'm, I'm literally judging myself how I think the world sees me is how I feel about me in that moment. So, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. What I saw over the years and had to heal from was far more than just plug in the jug, stop drinking, life's about to get good. And so, and then I thought, well, I can't be the most messed up person on the planet. It's got to be. And, and then I started to see it in other men in recovery everywhere. I would be like, oh, addictions come in pairs with despair. It's not just one. It's it's a cluster, and some of these are fused. Once he starts drinking, he can't stop vaping, or once he starts, there there's a lot of behaviors and thought processes and and uh, substances that get that get clustered together and they start to fuse. So I started to notice all that and then get trained by some pretty high level people, Dr. Patrick Carnes and others, who taught me a model that was more inclusive to say, if you want higher rates of success with men with, with, with a lot of mental health and, and trauma and addiction, you're gonna have to treat it all at the same time. You're gonna have to have multidisciplinary. So, so my career has been working in all these places and then coming up with my own concept not out of it wasn't birthed out of my brilliant brain it was taking from the enneagram and everything else along the way that i saw worked and then and then putting it all together under one roof so so that's how valiant came to be basically valiant came to be by saying this is my own personal journey but i'm noticing a lot of correlations with my life and a lot of other men 
So that's why we kind of specialize in that 30-something, 40-something, 50-something-year-old man who is really has a lot to lose, and there's a, a lot of issues that he is struggling with, and he's a good performer, and he can get people to like him or believe him, but underneath the surface, there's a lot of wounds, and there's a long process of reconstruction to build the trust with the family back and, and the traumatized spouse to do to do the full operation takes a, takes a special type of training, special type of heart, special type of containment, special type of safety um, to provide that environment where that change it's sort of like you do you do like you do 90 percent of the work, but the real the real magic are the miracles when these men make these decisions in their own heart and the spirit enters and and is able but that you really can't affect the change but you can do everything it's sort of like the really scaled back version is you could lead a horse to water you can't make it drink but you can try and make it thirsty most people think oh you need he needs to hit a bottom like you did michael in order to really change and it's not true like what i've seen is people can have high motivation and end up dead and people can have low motivation and end up having the best lives it's it's not necessarily why you come to rehab or why you come to the place of change it's what you do with it when it's presented to you yeah yeah so we can talk more about that what, what does that look like because most of my guys actually don't want to be with me i need to build a coalition mostly with a strong spouse a, a strong wife to actually shut the doors and 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 make it really difficult for the man to stay sick because the the old theory of people only change when the pain when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying sick so we have to actually make it sometimes we have to make it a little bit we have to actually amp up the fire on some of these guys in a loving way in order for them to get to this place where they finally start to internalize it and say, yeah, I need help. So much of what you're saying, you know, I, I talk a lot uh, in what I do on the coaching side, which is very different than what you're doing. Um, however, I'm passionate about a lot of the modalities that you use, uh, but I talk a lot about head change versus heart change. And that's what I hear you saying, like the, the behavior modification only lasts for so long, but when it becomes a heart transformation, that is the lasting change that we're looking for. And that's hard to get to because so many people, um, the cost of, of slowing down to actually have heart change, whether it is through a treatment center, um, you know, through addiction, or even the work that I'm doing with people that maybe are not in addiction, they're just trying to find um, healing in different parts of their story. It takes time. And what I find is that people don't want, they don't, they don't want to slow down to spend the time, but just like, just like your introduction, um, what you're learning is that the slow down, the time is worth it. Like slow down all these other things, you know, they pale in comparison to, to what, um, healthy connection actually means for our personal lives in the long run. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and even like the slowing down, is like is more like a slingshot that they have no idea that they're going to get rocketed forward and have so much clarity and uh and they're going to be so much more effective in whatever if we recreate their in their current profession or we help them uh to bridge their their talents into other areas that they have no idea that 
what's going to come back to them is is so much it's sort of like the seek the kingdom first and all else will be added it's like if you go for this and you slow down enough because what you just said is so true i it's like it never happens it's it's rarely but it's happened in like one-on-one therapy where i'm doing ifs internal family systems with a guy and all of a sudden he sees this part of him and it's a game changer in his life now those moments happen but more often than not it's all the things that we're doing and then it's this quiet moment when everything gets really slow by a lake and the guy's just depressed and he's hurting and he and he comes to this realization and he picks up a rock and he throws it in and it's on but you have to there's a long process of slowing down to get to that moment where he has that cathartic or he has that moment of clarity, right? Where if you don't slow down enough, you don't have that moment. Yeah. It's all in the margin, you know, and we have crafted lives that, that, that give little margin to anything, um, in, you know, in our society, it's like, go, 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 do, do, do bigger, better, more, all of these things. Um, which, you know, tell me what you think about this. Um, and this is what I've read, but I'd love to hear from you, especially somebody that's in this field where addiction is, um, addiction is a replacement for connection. So tell me what you think about that as far as the busyness in life and connection takes time again, like to, to cultivate healthy relationships, they, it takes time. And so we don't have a lot of time in our society. So when I think about addiction or the different things that we cope with, that we go to the medicators, um, what we're really looking for is connection. However, these other, these other things kind of can take the place of that, whether it's even like scrolling on your phone obsessively, um, you know, app, you know, drinking and drugs and, you know, vaping and nicotine, all those things are part of it too. But some of the, just the really simple things in life that I feel like we get caught up in. Um, tell me what you think about that. It's spot on. I mean, if you tease what out what you just said, addiction is the replacement for authentic connection, then and then you could look at just the addictive cycle alone. Like it all starts with misconnection, right? So like there's a thought process that leads us unconsciously or consciously to the fact that if you really knew me deep down, everything about me, um, you would you couldn't or wouldn't uh, love me, right? And so there's a belief system. That is, and whether it's from uh, some sort of uh, event or a series of events or neglect or uh, religious abuse or um, just somebody getting the wrong messages. However, the, the, the problem is long before the addiction or the woundings are long before the addiction ever starts. The misconnections long before. So then you take the, 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 those, that, that thought process and then you and then you add in the addictive cycle where there's a bunch of rationalizations well everybody's doing it there's no harm everybody needs to keep up on what's going on or we work hard we play hard or what she doesn't know is not going to hurt her or um you know like at least it's just weed it's not and and there's a thousand million if you put a guy in front of me there's a thousand rationalizations that goes in that make perfect sense into why he or she is doing what they're doing right so then what that leads into is a, a preoccupation state, which is part of the, the high of like, I'm about to go score. I'm, I can go to the bar right after work, or I'm going to go outside and, and um, have a cigarette, or I'm going to look at, 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 at my computer afterwards, or I'm going to meet up with somebody um, for an affair partner or something, a, a whole bunch of different things that you can start preoccupying on. You could start thinking about, it and it actually starts to get someone high. If you look at a cocaine addict or someone that's about to score opiates, their eyes are already pupils 
are already dilated. They're already sweating long before the score and the use, right? They're in this preoccupation. They're getting high. They're thinking about it. And then that goes into rituals, like what, what that person does, like, do they, do they go hit the ATM machine and then go make sure their phone is misplaced so no one can find them? There's different rituals, certain music, all the different rituals that they may be conscious or unconscious of that leads them then into the addictive behavior. Then I go act out. I do I do what I have to do. Like I, I, I go to the bar. I gamble. I do I do the, all this stuff that I – then I go into the shame cycle. Then, I, then if I'm not a sociopath or a psychopath or a total narcissist, then I go into like I can't believe I did that all the time I wasted I missed my son's soccer game uh, I hate myself God please redeem me I'll say seven rosaries a day I'll stop doing this I'll punish myself I'll and you go into this process of of bargaining and shame and guilt and deprivation and restriction it's that binge purge like an eating disorder now I'm going to restrict and I'm going to punish myself and then along the way I you pop into this unmanageable stage of like, I'm starting to feel weird again. I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. I'm starting to feel anxious. I'm starting to feel insecure. Boom, back into the thinking. Boom, back into the rationalizations. And if someone, that 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 cycle may be a year-long cycle. It may be a, a daily cycle. It may be a weekly cycle. But that cycle, once it's solidified, will not change. So one of the criteria for addiction is, um, he can quit or she can quit, but she can't stay quit. It's not, can you quit? It's, can you stay quit? The mental illness, the spiritual illness part of somebody with a compulsion or an addiction uh, is, is once it's solidified, only sort of a miracle process can undo that. You can't, a broken brain, uh, a sick brain can't heal a sick brain. The, the the brain that got somebody into all these problems to begin with can't be the same brain that so that's why we use all these behaviors these these therapies but also the length of time so that someone could live they call it um proceduralized memory you can't think your way into right living but you can live your way into right thinking where we have enough guardrails and enough love and enough and enough uh consistency and habit building that the person starts to live their way into right thinking, then you can start doing the deeper work. Then you can start doing the heart, like what you described as the heart work, because you can change your behaviors, but that's only going to last so long. So now, now you got to start doing the head to heart work where it seeps in and all of a sudden it becomes part of your being. It becomes part of your soul. It's, it's what you do. It's who you are. Right? So I love what Viktor Frankl said. He said um, the Jewish psychiatrist survived Auschwitz, brilliant man, came up with a therapy called Logos Therapy, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. But his one of his beautiful quotes, which were many, were success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue as an unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, meaning how you live, how you live, how you think, who you are, the result is going to be success and happiness. It's because it's because it's not necessary what you do and you strove and you got there and then all of a sudden you got happy. I got to the top of Everest or I made the money or I got into the Ivy League or all this crap that is actually a recipe for unhappiness. We those things are byproducts of a deeper issue which is the heart work, the heart work and then everything else is is a byproduct of the heart work. So that's a long answer to Absolutely, 100%. Yes, 
connection to self, connection to God, and to connection to others is the goal of good recovery. It's the goal of good therapy. It's the goal of good religion. It's the goal of of any process that's going to take you is is a deeper connection to the true self. I'm not talking about the false self that we've constructed. The true self, the people around me, and my creator. You know, so uh, and and then and there's a lot of ways to get there, but 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 um, connections it. So it's not like we're going to put you through a relapse prevention program and we're going to teach you about your triggers and we're going to we're going to help you with your triggers and then you're going to snap yourself with a rubber band and then you're going to walk away and then you're going to breathe and then it's like those behavior mod techniques are great but show me somebody that changed their whole essence and connected to their soul through behavior mod I think that it is like it's a part of like it's a modality it's part of but it's not the whole thing Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time as we continue our conversation about the Enneagram and what it means for your relationships. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And while you're there, we'd love for you to leave a review. Your kind words help others find the show. For more great Enneagram content, resources, and individual code, you can visit EnneagramWithJB.com. And while you're there, make sure to order Jackie's newest book, The Enneagram and Your Marriage. We'll see you next time on Enneagram with JB.